When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. At Discount Tire, we know your time is valuable. Get 30% shorter average wait time when you buy and book online. Did you know Discount Tire now sells wiper blades? Check out our current deals at DiscountTire.com or stop in and talk to an associate today. Discount Tire. Let's get you taken care of. Welcome to episode 156 of Love That Album. My name is Morris. Love That Album is proudly part of the Pantheon Network of Music Discussion Podcasts. Sing if you're glad to be listening to this episode. We are here to talk about a great album from 1978 by the Tom Robinson Band. The name of the album is Power in the Darkness. There's going to be a lot of political talk in this show. So if you think you're going to be offended by a lot of political talk, switch off because that's really what the Tom Robinson Band was about. But anyway, we'll get into that shortly. But I have a guest with me, a first-time guest. I'm super happy to have this man on the show. We've been talking about this for a long while, and finally we've got it. And his name is Tom Austin Morgan. He is the host of a sterling podcast about the history of English punk. The name of the show is Band, B-A-N-N-E-D. See what he did there? Band Biographies. Tom, welcome to the show. Morris, thank you so much for having me on. Uh, it's a pleasure. It's been a long time in the making, but I'm glad to be here. Uh, look, if I did shows every other week like most people do then this would have happened a lot earlier so I, I only have the time and the resource and the will to do this once a month but i make sure that we have a fun time on that one time a month i think this all started because some time ago i said to you hey listening to your show really loving it uh is there any chance that you do the tom robinson band on your show and you say yeah that's a good idea i don't know maybe at some stage and i thought you know what i'll just do it on my show and have you come on my show so why not? Uh, and, and part of the conversation will be whether Tom Robinson Band actually 
fits as a punk band. But that's a question for later on in the program. We, I won't answer your thoughts just yet. Um, <laughs> we'll talk about whether they are and whether it even matters. But for the moment, I'd love it if you'd get the listeners out there who may not be familiar with band biographies, and they should bloody well jump onto that if they're not. Talk a little bit about your background and about how you came to create the show. Sure. Thank you for uh, the glowing write-up. It's one of these things, It kind of it's been percolating in my mind for a while. And thank you also for pointing out that it's B-A-N-N. I come from a journalistic background, so I'm always looking for puns, I suppose. And wordplay is one of the things that I quite enjoy. It's one of those things that I've really had to get better at. However, what I did with coming up with band biographies is that I forgot that it's an audio medium so that people don't necessarily... You can't do a written pun in audio, so it doesn't really work. But, you know, it's I'm stuck with it now. It was something that I've wanted to do for a long time, kind of get into more documentary style podcasting but never found myself with the time i'm sure much like yourself you've i've got a lot of other things on i've got a couple of bands i'm in you know full-time job relationship all that kind of stuff and you've got to kind of balance everything out so uh yeah, I'd kind of written a couple of scripts and started recording the uh, first episode on the Sex Pistols, which I thought, you know, what better place to start if you're talking about 1970s punk in the UK than effectively the band that started it all. And it stayed kind of shelved for years. And then 2020 happened and I was put on furlough and suddenly I didn't have any excuses um, I didn't have any work to do for the first time in, I don't know, 15, 20 years. I, yeah, I, I, I went with it and I recorded about three or four episodes in a couple of weeks. It's a monthly podcast and it started out, as I say, a documentary podcast about a specific band each month. But the thing that you've got to learn about the UK punk circuit is it was such a intertwined community of musicians and hangers on really mm. that they all kind of almost every single episode that you kind of that I've made has referenced all the other bands and various members all cross over at various points in their careers yeah kind of going back to work in the the later part of 2020 meant that I suddenly started to run out of time again and so the show has kind of taken on a kind of hybrid documentary and interview format now so I also do interviews with relatively well-known right down to independent musicians and DJs and record label uh, owners that kind of thing anyone who I can possibly get on the show to talk about their career while I'm still feverishly trying to write the script for the next one while also doing work and balancing all those things again and also at the end of last year as well I'm not entirely sure if you're aware but I joined Sham 69 we had had this discussion yes I believe so yeah so that kind of was another spoke in the wheel that was added at the end of last year. Unfortunately, the European tour didn't go ahead because of the Omicron variant. But um, I filled out my calendar for the last half of this year and I don't know how I'm going to fit anything in. Busy people always seem to find a way to do everything. So yeah. I have every confidence that the podcast will go on. You'll still show up at work and everything at home will be just hunky-dory. Yeah, fingers crossed. Yeah. And so, so just just talk a little bit. I mean, look, I'll be honest with you. I mean, I'd always heard of Sham 69, but I had not actually listened to their music that much over the years. And so like doing a little bit of reading up, you got, you're in a situation now where there are two versions of Sham 69 at the moment. <laughs> 
Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting. Uh, yeah, I can talk about it in vagarity, vagueness. Uh, I don't know which one is the real word there. Um, I, yeah, I'll keep it vague. In about... 2002-2004 the original singer was kicked out of the band it's kind of happening at the moment with a band called the choir boys where they're kind of going through a similar thing right now it's quite interesting to watch actually uh, and yeah so jimmy percy the original singer of sham 69 was kicked out of the band for essentially not really showing up to gigs cancelling gigs at the last minute not giving the band a very good name with promoters and so they drafted in a new singer i think the bassist left at the same time as well but a new singer was drafted in the original guitarist and drummer continued on with a new singer and they got in a new bassist they went on tour for you know a number of years they were the first british punk band to go and play in china um in i think 2008 Mm. and then in about uh, 2012 2013 jimmy percy reformed a sham 69 with the old bass player and then the original guitarist jumped across from the band that is this band into the jimmy percy band Mm -hmm. so all of a sudden you've got the original sham 69 has only got the drummer (laughs) and the replacement singer and now you've got jimmy percy's band with three of the original 1977 lineup in it yeah and then it kind of gets messy from there like both bands are still touring the band i'm in still records because we've got the license and the copyright and all that but they still go out under sham 69 as well but they're the original 77 lineup touted version and we are the official sham 69 under the kind of tim v version so it's quite confusing but i've been told basically a friend of mine plays guitar for them who i play in a band with elsewhere and he essentially the, the the advice that he gave to me was just enjoy playing the songs don't get into any of the this is the real sham 69 that's the real sham 69 stuff that people come up to you and ask about uh and just yeah just enjoy it and that's what i intend to do really but yeah i think there's a lot of bands that i think it happened with ub40 as well didn't it i think they were i didn't know really i think there are like because the two brothers split off and did their own version of UB40. There's there's a few bands out there that have that it that it's happened to. And uh, yeah, I think sometimes when it's not properly promoted that it's this version of Sham 69 that you're coming to see. There have been people get the wrong end of the stick a little bit. And uh, yeah, it's it's interesting. <laughs> oh, good lord! Keep politics in Parliament and in the streets, folks. Don't bring it into bands. Regardless of the lineup and the people, I'm sure it must have been an absolute thrill. For you to have mm. uh, been asked to play for a, a band, which I, I'm presuming you had been a longtime fan of. Certainly listening to them for a good couple of decades, at least. Like, I'm I'm fully immersed in the music. Had never played any of it. Just, just was a listener of it. Yeah, to get a list of 40 songs to learn in a month <laughs> for a tryout was, uh, was slightly daunting. But luckily, you know, it's punk. It's three chords. <laughs> three chords and the truth. Exactly. There you go. <laughs> 
Oh, God. Well, anyway, look, thanks very much for uh, being a part of this conversation we're about to have on Tom Robinson Band. So uh, another mm. band that probably got started about the same time as Sham 69. I think uh, 19, 1977 sounds about right. Yeah. So what we're going to do is we're going to go to a break and Joanne will give the contact details and then we're going to come back and we're going to talk a whole lot of history because that's what we like to do on the show before we actually get around to talking about the album and the question. We just like to flap our gums on this show. Uh, <laughs> but hopefully it's all entertaining gum flapping. Uh, we're going to talk about the Tom Robinson Band and their first album, Power in the Darkness. We'll be back in a couple of moments. Morris over here and Tom over there. You're listening to Love That Album, episode 156. I got a dusty old pile of vinyl records sitting on my floor. We hope you're enjoying the show. You can find previous episodes at lovethatalbumpodcast.blogspot.com. Com, or you can get it along with any of the other great music discussion shows at rockandrollarchaeology.com, all part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. To keep up to date, subscribe to the show via Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or your podcast app of choice. You can email Morris with feedback or album suggestions at rrrkitchen at yahoo.com.au. Join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash love that album and start a music-related discussion. over here tom over there and we're going to be talking about the tom robinson band power in the darkness is the first album that they released it already been a couple of singles before they got around to recording that album and they'll no doubt come up in the conversation but i want to start as i usually like to do on these shows with the guest i like to ask what was your first uh, recollection of having heard tom robinson band um well i think it's like i would imagine quite a lot of people 2468 motorway was the inroad to the Tom Robinson band. Um, I don't know where I'd have heard it first, but it's one of those songs that's always kind of been there, you know, like a perennial. I mean, we were talking before we started recording about the Beatles and, you know, it almost doesn't matter what kind of household you're from you kind of you know a lot of the Beatles by osmosis especially if you're British and yeah 2468 Motorway is just one of those songs that's always been there is it a song that's still played like on Golden Oldies radio is it ubiquitous like I say I can't remember in what context I'd have heard it but I, I, I assume it must have been played quite a lot still when I was younger so we're talking late 80s still I used to listen to a lot of request radio when I was younger I used to fall asleep with the radio on and so it must have been on there I guess Um, and obviously Tom Robinson has connections with Kent where I live so perhaps it was that but yeah certainly that song was a kind of perennial I mean Power in the Darkness I think I first listened to when I was a teenager Um, so we're talking late 90s into early 2000s 
I think as well, like we were talking a little bit before the episode that we we started recording, and I came from a family who's that they weren't. My parents weren't particularly musical, but they enjoyed listening to music. Neither of them played instruments or, or anything like that, and their their taste was kind of top forty. One of the things that I uh, I kind of admit to is my mum's favourite band was the Bay City Rollers. So that kind of tells you where I'm where I'm from. <laughs> well, I, I'm sure that a lot of people's mothers were fans of the Bay City Rollers. Yeah. And so, you know, like my dad would tape the chart show or Top of the Pops and kind of we'd watch that over and over over the weekend. That was religion, really, was Top of the Pops and the chart show. And then I suppose it was only when I got into secondary school from the age of 12, 13 upwards that I started kind of developing my own music tastes and through my friends that brought been brought up in houses where people played music or had uh, wider ranges of uh, musical influence so it would have been at some point during secondary school probably around the age of 13 to 15 that I heard Power in the Darkness for the first time and yeah I think up until that point I just kind of thought that they were a bit I, I i guess maybe i thought two four six eight motorway i didn't know exactly when it had been released it just kind of it, it didn't sound punk to me that's for sure but then power in the darkness has certainly got some more kind of agit prop uh kind of vocal uh, lyrical qualities to it and and slightly more abrasive mm-hmm. sounding uh, especially the first couple of tracks anyway but yeah it's certainly more melodic than a, than the other kind of bands that were around at that time as well let me put this to you this might take some level of trying to imagine what it would be like but do you think that a lot of power in the darkness and we, we'll get to the album itself later on but do you think that a lot of power in the darkness would sound more like a punk album if mark ambler the keyboard player the hammered organ player wasn't on the album you don't normally associate i'm not saying it didn't happen in punk bands of the era but mm. but generally it was bass drums guitar for the most part do you think that some of the songs would would sound more abrasive without the keyboards and more punk. possibly although i think one of the things that kind of makes the tom robinson band stand out from their other contemporaries i think really they're more of a uh what i would have considered a pub rock band like yep. the stranglers again they've got a hammond organ player and you know it, it's it, there's a similar kind of sound to them but tom robinson seems to be able to or the band anyway seem to have a a real kind of ability to put in kind of really poppy, catchy hooks Mm. that perhaps weren't quite so evident in other bands of the time. I made this comparison in my head with Nick Lowe for some reason. I tended to think okay, yeah. he's, he's a, you know, another sort of pub rock guy, very, very melodic, maybe not quite as much aggro as uh, some of the Tom Robinson's band songs are. Yeah, I think I'd agree. So, and in a way, I think it's that having those pop hooks and that pop, a more polished production means that it got on radio more so than, you know, the Sex Pistols or the Damned or whoever else was around at the time. And that's almost more subversive. The the lyrics are still overtly political and have meaning. They're more likely to get played on your radio stations at the time. I was watching a video on YouTube just a couple of days ago and it was Tom Robinson. We didn't see him, but he got his audio and we got like a slideshow and he was giving like a half hour lecture called give up your day job Mm. and it was basically him talking to other songwriters 
about how you can make your songwriting work for you. I mean, for for someone who's known as being this agitprop, very left-wing songwriter, but he's not at all anti-capitalist as it were he, he says well you can you want to be a songwriter you might as well make it work for you and make some money doing what it is that you love and yes mm. he does talk he does talk about some very practical things about promotion of your work and not necessarily limiting it to social media sort of stuff he does give some what sounds like some very practical tips but Unlike a lot of other songwriters who talk about the business side, he says, the thing that you're selling is your music. It is your songs. You have to get something that you people will want to listen to. It sounds obvious, but too often people, they dismiss the idea of a catchy hook, of a catchy pop song. And mm. that to me is the underlining factor of everything on this album is its catchiness. What he's gone and done on this album and in his songs in general, the melodies are full of hooks. They've got catchy mm. guitar riffs. They've got sing-along choruses. And this sort of goes back to last month's Love That Album, where we were talking a little bit about how the musical tradition has been a big part of British pop musicians' own work. And I'd say that something like uh, 2468 Motorway, which sort of said, well, maybe that's not so much a musical. That's more like a song that you'd put your arms around your mate and sing at the football. But yeah. uh, but Glad To Be Gay, if you took away the lyrical content for a moment, it's a sort of song that you'd imagine being sung in the musical tradition. It really does. Yeah. Sound, it sounds like the sort of song that a whole bunch of people would put their arms around each other and sit singing around the piano. It's that sort it, of thing. Exactly that. Yeah, yeah. It's like a stand-up piano in the corner of the pub. And it's it's one of those, yeah, absolutely. I love that he's never been dismissive. In fact, he's actively encourages. Get a hooky melody. You know, say mm. what you want. And he does say a lot of what he He says, I want people to know that I'm pissed off with the state of English politics. I'm pissed off that much of our country has turned to fascism. How am I going to get my message across? It's not by standing on a soapbox at Hyde Park. I'm going to get my message across cross by making a tune that's going to stick in your head with lyrics that are unambiguous that's another thing a lot of songwriters not just political songwriters but a lot of songwriters they couch what they have to say metaphors and that's fine but where he says i've got a message i want you to understand i'm not going to be ambiguous about this every song on this album you know and every song that he's ever written that i've heard i'm not saying i've heard this entire back catalog i haven't but every song Mm. that i know of that he's done the lyrics are never ambiguous ambiguous you know straight away what he's getting to but it doesn't necessarily mean that the lyrics uh, are naff they're they're still Mm. they're still clever but they're unambiguous and that's just he says that's not a sin that's a message i got from this uh, bbc documentary yeah i I would actually second that and say that if people haven't been onto your facebook page and wherever else that you shared that and given that a listen if you're a, a musician or an aspiring musician or just someone with an interest in how the music business works give that a listen because it really was very enlightening from someone who clearly knows what they're talking about as well and yeah i i found that really inspiring actually when i when i listened to it after you'd posted it the other day and it's kind of made me go away and think quite deeply about some of the music that i make as well so thank you so much for sharing oh that. look i found this an absolutely fascinating dis- discussion a fascinating i don't know lecture or whatever from mm. someone who knows his business 
And from someone, I would have thought, well, because of his political background, I wouldn't have thought maybe that that's something that he would have discussed in that way. And yet there's so much more to Tom Robinson than just these two albums, these two very, very political albums. He's a man who's always stuck by his convictions and stuff, but he's done a whole bunch of other things. And if you can talk to us for a little bit about, I mean, I'm sure the other English listeners will be aware of this, but I only sort of found out in like the last year or two that he'd been a BBC radio announcer. How long had he been doing that? And what was his show? Was he just sort of doing a John Peel type of show? What, what was he doing? Uh, well, yeah, he started out on the BBC World Service in the 1990s. Uh, and he kind of got into this slightly, he, he, he got more into the kind of realms of almost like a John Peel-esque role on um, BBC Six Music later on. Oh, no, sorry, it wasn't the 90s. It was 1986. Uh, he was offered uh, a show on the World Service. He's presented programs on Radio 1, Radio 2, 3, 4, 5, Live and 6 Music. So he's 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 crossed the gamut of, you know, everything from super popular Radio 1 right through to the really niche stuff on Radio 6 and also Talk Radio, which is 5 Live, which is usually like 5 Live is a lot of sports, but it's also films, culture and that kind of thing. It's more of a talk radio than it is music really and in the 90s on radio 4 he ran a, a show called the locker room which was about men and masculinity oh wow on on radio 4 uh and later after john peel passed away he uh hosted a show called home truths which was essentially a tribute a show to john peel uh he, he did a show about gay music um which he won a sony award for in 1997 he now presents his own show on on six music on saturdays between 9 p.m and midnight um and on sundays between 6 p.m and 8 p.m and you know it, it's it's songs that he picks as well as on certain themes and 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 kind of listener interaction as well so he's had a long and varied career in in broadcast over here i've listened to him on bbc six i went through a very kind of long patch where i didn't really listen to the radio at all probably between 2003 through to i don't know only a few years ago i started getting back into listening to radio again because podcasting took over my life (laughs) (laughs) oh i can't identify with that at all (laughs) no i'm sure it's a, an alien concept for uh, for a lot of people out there but actually coming back to six music specifically is uh is one of these radio shows i think it came about while i was at university and it was almost like the whole radio station was an extended episode of john peel basically it was the most eclectic uh, set of DJs playing all sorts of different types of music. And then it was threatened with closure in the mid noughties. And there was a big petition to save it. And Tom Robinson again was at the forefront of that push. And luckily it, it survives to this day, still playing an incredible array of music from all different eras, genres, everything. Uh, and it's probably one of the best radio stations there is out there at the moment, I think, really. 
This is the Tom Robinson Show on BBC Radio 6 Music. Like I say, I only knew him from the 6 Music stuff. I didn't realise that he'd been on every single BBC radio station throughout his career. For me, Tom Robinson has, I don't know whether he kind of dipped in and out of, of popular culture as he kind of made his way through the various stations. But for me, it was like I discovered his music when I was a teenager, which is probably, you know, 20 odd years after it was being recorded and released. I only rediscovered him again, you know, a, a few years ago, really, realising that he was still out there. I know that I heard a, an interview with him on um, Scroobius Pip's Distraction Pieces podcast, which is where I was like, oh, this guy. And then listening to his story and kind of almost having a bit of a reminiscence about the band. And that's when I started listening to his music again. So, yeah, it's uh, it's been the last four or five years that I've I've really kind of taken notice of his uh, of his career again. For my own discovery of him was strangely enough more in an acoustic vein it wasn't until like really only in the last few years that i went back to hear the full tom robinson band punk rock pub rock whichever way you want to classify it even if it's relevant uh, mm. first of all i think it was like in the late 70s there were a series of concerts that were put on by amnesty international i'm sure you're familiar with them the secret policeman's ball and i think it might have been in 1980 that i saw the secret policeman's ball film which was i think the second in the series of these concerts the first one might have been i think it was called a, a poke in the eye with a sharp stick but to this day i've never seen that one but i saw the secret policeman's ball which was filmed in a way pretty poorly because it's pretty dark and dingy but that sort of in a way adds to the atmosphere and for those for the one or two of you out there who may not have even heard of this or don't know about it it was a group of comedians and musicians getting up on stage in i think i can't remember which theater in london just doing whatever they did to raise money for amnesty so i remember going i think it was maybe 1980 i went to like some dingy little cinema in the city here and saw the secret policeman's ball and i just absolutely fell in love with it but tom robinson himself shows up in the film singing glad to be gay you don't have to be gay to sing on this chorus but it helps To be gay, sing if you're happy that way. Hey, sing if you're glad to be gay, sing if you're happy that way. And at that time, Hearing that song was a real eye-opener for a couple of reasons. First of all, when a lot of mainstream popular culture was painting the gay community in a very negative light. Uh, the mm. characters, if you can think of whatever show, Are You Being Served? The Goodies. Um, <laughs> over here, the Paul Hogan show. American films like Freebie and the Bean. It's just the character very, very camp. And yep. here is a song that points out the hypocrisies in mainstream British society. And I'm not sure how long it had been from the time he wrote that song till how far back when homosexuality in Britain had stopped being declared illegal. But couldn't have been that long. But still, the stigma had obviously remained. And he was so pissed off, he felt the need to write this song. And in this song, 
gay people are still physically and mentally harassed and declared obscene while no one complains about page three girls being freely available and in your face. The song, I remember hearing it for the first time and just found, this is really confronting and he was angry. He was pissed off and he wanted you to know it. The Mm. other thing about this film and about Tom Robinson's appearance in it was he was the only person in this film that was ostensibly there to help political prisoners of conscience. He was the only person in that film, maybe apart from Pete Townsend and for the wrong reasons, um, he was the only person who was doing a political song. There were no sketches that were political in that film. And the only other song that comes close to being political is Pete Townsend playing with my classical guitar hero, John Williams, doing Won't Get Fooled Again. And I want to bring that song up again later in the show because it's directly referenced in, in a song. But for reasons that we'll talk about, Won't Get Fooled Again is not the song that most people actually think it is. But hearing Glad to Be Gay in this film, it's as I said, it's an irony that it's the only political part of a film that should have been maybe more political in nature. Oh, look, I don't know. Maybe it was just, let's have a night out. Your money go to a good cause. We're just going to give you what you want. But Tom Robinson thought, I'll give you what I want and you can hopefully go along with that. Another interesting thing, though, about the music charts at that time, we keep hearing about, you know, how the punk movement, and the new wave movement became a really, really big thing. But I went and had a look online just to sort of see, right, well, what were the biggest top 40 songs of mm. 1978? What were Britain's listening habits? Were they all listening to The Clash and Ian Dury and Lena Lovitch? Uh, and absolutely not and the specials <laughs> and you know the, and the likes of that yeah so the biggest songs of the year were from Fleetwood Mac and the Bee Gees and the Village People and Racy and Elton John and the Electric Light Orchestra and Supertramp I'm not really necessarily sure that these bands who say we created this new back to basic music so we could sort of sweep uh, the likes of Genesis and Yes and all these prog rock bands and all these bands that spend two years and a lot of cocaine money to make their, <laughs> to make their records. We want to bring things back to simplicity because I know that seems to be something of a myth, but at least certainly the general public were not swallowing that. I mean, yes, certainly mm. it was a thing with a section of the music listening populace. You know, a lot of young people presumably who thought I can't identify with Stevie Nicks. I can't identify with the village people or, or Elton John. They're, they're just wealthy and singing about things that are not my concern. So it'd be stupid for me to suggest that it had no effect, because of course it did. But mm-hmm. as I said, the biggest songs of that year were those more poppy, middle-of-the-road, mainstream sort of acts. Yeah, I totally agree. Like It's a movement that was, uh, as I said earlier on, quite niche, really. It was a very small community of people in London and some of the other major 
major cities of the UK, but largely it was a London-based scene. So you were, there were no, at the time, punk movements like in Birmingham, say, or... or... Uh, there certainly were. I mean, you had uh, the two-tone movement, which came out of Coventry with the specials. Uh, you also had the Buzzcocks and uh, Slaughter and the Dogs and people like that from Manchester. And yeah, there were there were kind of pockets in mainly urban areas in, in, in cities. Yeah, it certainly wasn't taking over the charts. There were the odd couple of songs that made it through, like, for example, God Save the Queen. officially didn't chart but was kind of at number two or was it really number one mm. we'll never know because you know the statistics were fudged but that was mainly because it was banned on the bbc so people went out and bought it to hear it but yeah i would say that punk certainly wasn't chart topping music until you get to the new wave stuff in the 80s really with the cure and right. bands like that and then you're going to get into the new romantic era that came out of the punk movement and the blitz club in London uh, and there was another club in Birmingham as well which spawned obviously Duran uh, Duran who were followers of new wave music yeah it, it certainly wasn't the it, it wasn't washing things away otherwise you wouldn't have acts like Dream Theater or uh, you know any of the kind of prog rock bands that still survive to this day I mean it's 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 not the truth no no, no it's not <laughs> it also seems like a lot of the bands that started out with punk or all that punk energy moved into other areas. I mean, long-time listeners to this show or, or maybe people who've been following up in the Love That Album Facebook group know that I'm a huge Joe Jackson tragic, not as a human being, but as a songwriter, as a musician. <laughs> so those those first couple of albums are very punk-like in energy, but he was like a mm. classically trained percussionist and pianist at the Royal Academy of Music. He, he was attracted to the punk energy, but he was never going to play like the Sex Pistols, but he, yeah, um, albums like Look Sharp and I'm the Man, you know, full of great pop punk energy. And then he decided, right, well, now I'm going to follow uh, up with jazz on Jump and Jive or Latin music on Night and Day or just follow my muse wherever I want to go. Yeah, and I would say it's uh, similar to Elvis Costello as well. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A lot of people were doing that. And that's where it comes to my next sort of connection with Tom Robinson. After having seen him perform that song in The Secret Policeman's Ball, the next time I heard him would have been in the early early 90s, I read a review of an album that came out, I think, on the Cooking Vinyl label called Living in a Boom Time. It was a live album. And I, to this day, I'm still not sure whether it's all new material. For, I mean, all new material for the time or whether it was songs that he'd written and recorded over the 80s. There was certainly no Tom Robinson band songs on the album. It showed that he was still political, but I mean, I don't think there was anything about the National Front on that album at the time. But uh, mm. I, I don't think that that was his immediate concern anymore. He wrote some love songs on the album, uh, 
because that was more of a concern for him. You know, he, in fact, I, I was watching a documentary where he said quite foolishly, like in the Tom Robinson band era, he said, why people sort of just put me up as a political songwriter? I've written one or two love songs. Why do the political songs get all the media focus? Well, Tom, because you've done so much political stuff. It's great, but, <laughs> but that's why you're known as what you are. But on this album, living in a boom time, as I said, it was all acoustic, but he still hadn't lost completely all the fire. So there were two songs in particular. I know there's more, but two songs in particular that really sort of brought back the old fire in a way mm. lyrically. One song called Yuppie Scum. And then we chant Yuppie Scum, Smug and Dumb. The richer they are, the thicker they get. Yuppie Scum, Smug and Dumb. As they get old, they all forget. Which was... <laughs> based on a song by Jacques Brel. How many right. punk songwriters are going to say that? But uh, <laughs> but it's it's told in the first person. And I love this song. Each verse successively tells a tale of three guys who go from left-wing ideology and making fun of the well-to-do to ultimately, mm-hmm. years later, becoming what they used to take the piss out of. And the second song that I think of is uh, Living in a Boom Time, the title track. New opportunity, knock, knock, knocking in a boom time. New opportunities, let's forget about the gloom time. We've all got new opportunities. And it also tells stories of people who started with noble ideologies who then went corporate, because if they didn't, other people would. Some of these people, they tragically succumb to alcohol and drugs, but it's all good because, hey, we're living in a boom time. Mm-hmm. So he was still very sharp. He still had things to say. In fact, really, I think in some ways, these songs are a lot lyrically clever I mean, this is not putting anything down on power in the darkness but he had a message to give he was basically saying I've got something to say I don't want to stand on a soapbox because you'll never pay attention to me but I have to get my message across so I'm going to be as straightforward as I can and the songs on living in a boom time they're still very understandable but I think he's written the Tom Robinson band songs more as a guy who has something to say and is adding music to it but mm. living in a boom time the lyrics are written by someone who is thinking very strongly about uh, lyric as song craft. Both are wonderful, but that's just how I see what he's done on this album. So that was an album that I played incessantly. And it never seemed to be anything at the time. Like nowadays, you can find anything you want, either as a download or as a re-released CD or as a re-released record. But Really, there was nothing else that I could find available at the time. So I just grabbed what I could. And this um, album, I still play it tons to this day. It's just absolutely fantastic. Him and a guitar and plenty of energy, but also pulls back on the dynamic when he absolutely has to. I'm going to have to give his solo stuff a bit more of a listen. I, I Again, I wasn't massively aware that he'd had such a long solo career, if I'm honest. Looking at uh, his discography, that's his one, two, three, four, fifth studio album of about 10 so well that's it's actually a live album but it's right um, okay but it's you know for me it was like as good as a studio album because i'd never heard these songs before now i'm just trying to remember there was an album that i did hear a little bit of from the 80s all right it was called war baby which is actually one of the songs that's on living in a boom time yeah war baby hope and glory so there you go so there's at least there's something there that was 
already recorded before. So I don't know how much. There might be some new songs, some older songs, but I heard a little bit of this War Baby album and it sounded very much like an album from the mid 80s, like everyone else who was going for that very heavily synthed sound, very heavily gated type of sound. listened to a couple of songs and I thought right uh, I don't need to hear the rest of this and that's my bad maybe I'll go back and give it another shot because sometimes beneath the gloss there is still a great song that's waiting to be discovered but uh, you know when you expect something then and you find something else you think oh yeah I don't really need to get this song to listen like a lot of that 80s glossed over sound really has never appealed to me yeah it's incredible really I think what what kind of marks him out Tom Robinson against his I suppose peers at the time is the quality of the lyric as you say it's very direct it says what it means and clearly he thinks very hard about the message that he's putting out there directness was certainly something that attracted me to kind of punk music in the first place but you listen to a lot of the tub thumping bands like the sex pistols and you're like nah do you really believe what you're what you're saying or is that just you be you saying it for shock value and you know trying to shake the tree a little bit hello john lyden if you're listening <laughs> how's the butter board <laughs> i buy country life because i think it tastes the best uh, no you're absolutely right i mean the the stuff that he's come out with in the last few years yes it's still that shocking thing but clearly He's just a contrarian and and saying things to shock people. And but you look at the at the lyrics to Tom Robinson's songs, and they have a direct meaning, but they have a very clear, politicized and deeply felt and deeply held meaning. I feel anyway, clearly because he's you know he's he's talking about various issues that he also actively kind of is involved in causes for as well he, he walked the walk absolutely yeah yeah stood he, he, he did what he preached look at, at this stage i think i mean look i've gone and watched a documentary a superb documentary white riot and as i said to you before we started recording i've been reading this book never again rock against racism and the anti-nazi league 1976 to 1982 but I'm speaking to someone who heavily invested in the history of that time. So I'd like to hand the floor over to you. The Rock Against... <laughs> we we can't talk about Tom Robinson without talking about the Rock Against Racism movement, the National Front, fascism of the time. And unfortunately, we still live in very dangerous times where you know a whole lot of racist fuck knuckles are out there. Excuse my language, but <laughs> I, I'm, I'm going to be direct about this in, you know, in, in my own country, as well as other parts of the world it's happening it's very very scary but could you please talk for a bit about what led to the rock against racism movement and what the england of the day was like 
Sure. To start, I'm going to go back to probably 1973, 74. Labour got into power uh, on the 4th of March, 1974, led by Harold Wilson. And essentially, he'd, he'd followed on from another prime minister, Edward Heath, who had planned uh, for a quiet revolution to the country. He was going to change the, the face of the country after the Second World War. The UK had been on its uppers a little bit after the devastation wrought and, uh, you know, both financial and physical to its towns and cities, except that there was a national energy crisis and a financial crash and strikes, which led to the three-day week. And effectively, Harold Wilson picked up a minority government, uh, which I, th- I believe won by a... <laughs> a landslide of three seats you know whenever there's a kind of coalition in power not a lot gets done and so the economy was in recession but by 1976 economic growth had been re-established except the fact that inflation was now above 20 percent um this is not good uh, it's something that we're kind of we're, we're nowhere near in this country at the moment, but inflation is massively on the rise right now um, and is at its worst since I think 1993 right at this moment. Back in the 70s, this 20 percent uh, inflation, it would remain high for the rest of the Labour government, essentially rarely falling below 10 percent. Unemployment was in excess of a million people, whereas at the start of the decade under the Tories, it had been only 600 thousand and this again was a result of economic decline as well as advanced engineering techniques which required fewer personnel which along with other factors including the closure of unprofitable factories and coal mines meant that obviously the uh, the unemployment rate was rocketing in march of 1976 wilson resigned and was replaced by james callahan uh, and at this point uh, the government was forced to apply for the international monetary fund a loan of 4 billion dollars Uh, to bail it out, basically. We were in dire straits in the UK in the 1970s. IMF negotiators insisted upon deep cuts in public expenditure, which massively affected economic and social policies. And within a year of Callaghan taking office, the three-seat Labour majority was eliminated entirely due to various by-election defeats. And this prompted um, him to strike what's called a confidence supply agreement with the Liberal Party, which prevented the government's collapse and a general election from being called. Forgive my ignorance here, and I I apologise to the British listeners who know this, but like in Australia, the Liberal Party, capital L Liberal Party, is a conservative party what does liberal party mean in so the, the liberal the liberal democrats in this country that they've become now and and they were the liberals back then were a kind of middle but slightly to the right party they weren't mm-hmm. quite the conservatives they certainly weren't on the left of things they've always kind of stood kind of firmly in the middle but with a very slight right wing leaning they've always been well until recently they've been like it's been tories and conservatives and labor as the two main parties and then the lib dems are always kind of the third never quite powerful enough to oust either of them but were big enough that either one could gain a majority with the help of the liberals but actually more recently the liberal democrats have kind of 
fallen underneath UKIP and uh, and and various other kind of quite right wing, and even I think maybe even the Green Party are now have more members of Parliament than the Lib Dems these days. But don't quote me on that; I'm not entirely sure. Um, but yeah, they're certainly not anywhere near the top two these days. But yeah, so back then the Labour Party got in cahoots with the Liberals, as well as uh, the Ulster Unionists and the Scottish Nationalist Party as well. So it's an un- an uneasy alliance, which is only really there to keep the Tories out. By 1978, economic growth was fi- firmly re-established and inflation came below 10%, although unemployment was still at a post-war high of 1.5 million. And the opinion polls showed that Labour, a Callaghan, was a uh, was widely expected to sweep the board at the next general election in that autumn, giving Labour a chance to kind of go on for another four years to 1983. But he didn't call a general election, and I'm not entirely sure why, but his failure to do so would eventually prove the end of the Labour government, mainly because in the winter of 1979, it's known in this country as the winter of discontent. There were a lot of uh, industrial disputes and widespread strikes in you know various factories and coal mines because of increasing automation and the kind of the unprofitable nature of coal pits so what happened was that a vote of no confidence was passed on the 28th of March 1979 which eventually led of course to him being replaced by Margaret Thatcher of the Conservatives and um, from there, the scourge of all left-leaning punk rock mm. writers. <laughs> I mean, Callahan's friendliest biographers um, have taken a very negative view of the period. And historians Alan Sked and Chris Cook summarise the consensus of these historians regarding Labour from 74 to 79 in their book from 1993 called Post-War Britain, A Political History. And they said, if Wilson's record as Prime Minister was soon felt to have been one of failure, that sense of failure was powerfully reinforced by Callaghan's turn as Premier. Labour, it seemed, was incapable of positive achievements. It was unable to control inflation, unable to control the unions, unable to solve the Irish problem, unable to solve the Rhodesian question, unable to secure proposals from Welsh and Scottish devolution, unable to reach a popular modus vivendi with the common market, unable even to maintain itself in power until it could go to the country at the date of its own choosing. It was little wonder, therefore, that Mrs. Thatcher resoundingly defeated it in 1979. And so that's the political kind of landmark at the time, a Labour Party who had only just squeaked in and due to various things that were sometimes outside of its control and sometimes not, became incredibly unpopular. But also the weather was doing very strange things in the mid-70s as well. The UK experienced its hottest, driest summer on record to that point in 1976. Between the 23rd of June and the 8th of July, there were 16 consecutive days over 30 degrees centigrade, which is ridiculous for this country. (laughs) 15 of those days were over 32 degrees, and on five of those days, the temperature exceeded 35 degrees. 
this was then proclaimed the great drought uh and essentially that was because from the autumn of 1975 through to the spring of 1976 there were some months that had no rainfall at all which is again incredibly rare for this country the drought was at its most severe in august of 1976 where parts of the southwest went 45 days without any rain crops were badly hit with five hundred million pounds worth of crops failing and food prices subsequently increased by 12 percent i mean it, it was so uh infamous this um this heat wave that every single heat wave in this country since has been compared to it or benchmarked against it I mean, it's no wonder then that people were feeling disenfranchised and the youth of the time began to feel frustrated and increasingly nihilistic with no job prospects and suffering this stifling weather. And then out of this kind of bubbling undercurrent of tension and heat exploded the punk rock movement, really, which epitomised the national feeling of the youth at the time and is where people like Tom Robinson came from. Okay, so that's explaining a lot about the federal politics of the time. But can we talk a little bit about how the national front came into being well maybe not necessarily how how that started per se but from what i've been reading and certainly what i saw in that documentary about white riot the national front seemed to be able to draw a lot of people into their tractor beam as it were mm. with uh, all manner of dealing to people the worst side of people's nature you know it wasn't they weren't just going to start out being bigger to actually not just the national front there was a whole lot of smaller groups as we were talking about before we started recording but the book and, and the film sort of make the point that people were lured in through their worst side of their nature saying, oh, this, this guy's going to take your job. It's an age old thing. And then the groups amongst themselves were fighting because, as we spoke about before we recorded, that people say, oh, your form of bigotry is not as good as my form of bigotry. And there were, <laughs> there were power plays between who was taking over different branches of the National Front. And so, so where it got to be a worry was that these groups were lining up to get involved in council elections. And so mm. from what I understand, it seems like Rock Against Racism as a movement was started up to get young kids more aware of what's happening politically you know kids who just you know they want to enjoy their life they don't want to have to think about politics but they're saying look you know what if you don't go look for politics it's coming for you these people are going to get voted in and your life is going to be absolutely miserable and then there were of course the whole thing about the children of immigrants from india from the caribbean first generation born in england but they're treated like dirt and yeah i can't remember if it was someone in the national front or it could have even been heath or someone who said oh, oh no so it was, it was it was just pal but there was a danger mm -hmm. that they're going to bring the federal politicians in on it saying we're going to if we get into power we're going to make sure that you go back to your country of origin i think it specifically like when idi amin I, I think i read where idi amin came into power in uganda and a lot of people left uganda to come to england because they were under the commonwealth they thought, right, okay, we can come here and uh, we can start a new life. But the politicians and the members of the National Front were saying, well, yeah, you might be part of the Commonwealth, but you're not English, so you have no place here. And I found this book frightening and yet in a way I shouldn't have been surprised because I think, well, this is still happening. This is, it's happening all around the world. But 
there were people like those, like Red Saunders, who started up the Rock Against Racism movement, who said, right, we're building up your numbers. Well, we're going to build up our numbers and we're going to play music because that's what's going to attract younger people to get on the political mm. bandwagon and we get our message across. And obviously getting messages across musically was something that a lot of bands, but particularly Tom Robinson, he's the subject of this show, uh, was <laughs> very much something that he thought, right, I can get involved with the movement and I can write these songs which are basically sort of going to say, give the message, you know, you can't be listening to Fleetwood Mac songs all your life. Really, something has to be done. What's really sad in a way is that, I mean, our, our government has just invoked not a law, but certainly a policy of dealing with immigrants into this country right now, where if immigrants make it into the UK through illegal means, i.e. crossing the channel on a rubber dinghy or, you know, stowing away in the back of a lorry, then they're going to be deported to Uganda? I did read that. Yes, yes, yes. I mean, look, we've been having problems in Australia for years where we've had people who've been risking their life going on rubber dinghies, as you put them. They've been put on islands off the northern coast of Australia and kept in detention for years. In fact, I mean, we had some people who in, here in Melbourne who were kept in a hotel for like 10 years so we're no better than than what's going on in england at the moment it makes me sad to think that the issues from essentially nearly 50 years ago uh, that these songwriters were were talking about, like The Clash and Tom Robinson and and bands like that. These issues are still central to people's lives today. It's 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 mind blowing. But as you say, 1976. I mean, there's one area of the country, Blackburn, where the National Front won 40 percent of the votes in the local spring elections. There, 40 percent is a lot. <laughs> you know, that same month there was an Asian teenager called Gurdip Singh. Chan He'd been murdered by a gang of white youths in Southall in London. And uh, the National Front's spokesperson, John Kingsley Reid. Yes, I read about him. Uh, said, one down, a million to go. That was his response. Nasty piece of shit. I read that quote last week. Yeah. And I thought, you fucker. Excuse my language, listeners, but really. It's horrendous, but we're dealing with incredibly emotionally charged topics, so I think it's perfectly legitimate. I was going to say exactly the same thing. <laughs> Be my guest. We're against racism in all facets of British life. We want rebel music, street music, music that breaks down people's fear of one another, music that knows who the real enemy is. Love music, hate racism. Rock against racism, so effectively one of the main or a couple of the main things, as well as obviously the increase of far-right groups, National Front, there are many, and, you know, all the splinter groups thereof, uh, that are, you know, arises in racist attacks on the streets, like the one I just mentioned. The movement was also, in part, founded a response to other racist statements by musicians. David Bowie was quoted as saying that he thinks Britain should benefit from a fascist leader. After all, fascism is really nationalism. I believe very strongly in fascism. People have always responded with greater efficiency under regimental leadership. He was also quoted as saying Adolf Hitler was one of the first rock stars. You've got to have an extreme right front come up and sweep everything off its feet and tidy everything up. I mean, he massively U-turned on that later on in his career by saying that he'd made two or three glib theatrical observations of English society 
Uh, and the only thing that I can now counter with is to state that I'm not a fascist. Someone also photographed him doing what looked like a Nazi salute, although he vehemently claimed even at the time that he was waving and they just caught him mid-wave, shall we say. But also the other major act who kind of crawled out from under some rock with his views was Eric Clapton. See, this is the thing. Until my son told me about this about three, four years ago, I'd been blindly ignorant. I had no idea that that was the case. And the more I read about, you know, what he'd said and his support of Enoch Powell, his comments at that concert uh, about in, his Birmingham. Support, in Birmingham about Enoch Powell and his support for him. I believe that that was the impetus for um, the founder of Rock Against Racism, Red Saunders, to write an open letter to Clapton via the NME. And, you know, I think yeah. he closed it off with saying, uh, who shot the sheriff? Sure as hell wasn't you, Eric. This is the thing, isn't it? It was pointing out the hypocrisy of someone who's basically made an entire career from playing blues. Yes, exactly. <laughs> which is a predominantly, you know, historically black musical style it seems like the eric clapton thing got lost in history for a while and then kind of yeah crawled out of the woodwork again maybe five years ago i think he said something slightly controversial again a few years back which kind of brought these uh original comments back up again maybe because he he said it at a time before the internet when everything was always available but yeah True. A question I want to quickly point to you. I, mean, I, I do want to get to speaking about the actual album under discussion and mm. Tom's reaction to the events of those few years. But I want to ask you, political protest songs, do they make a difference or not? It's a good question. I like to believe they do. I, I'm never quite sure. It's, it's the same thing as posturing on social media, I guess. Mm-hmm. Are you just preaching to the converted? You know, Is your message, sorry, getting through to people who don't think the same way that you do i don't know if it's easy to quantify which i think is the point of rock against racism really it's to get kind of teenagers and young people more consciously involved in thinking about this kind of thing it seems to me that listening to interviews with people like tom robinson and various other musicians at the time that they felt it was doing something but yeah i, d- I don't know what, what what are your thoughts you know what i think the world would be a sadder place without your troubadour with a guitar saying what they think i don't necessarily think that it's going to convert someone who's right wing or is fascist or is bigoted or whatever into mm. realizing the nastiness of their ways and it may just be preaching to the converted however if the message is not just hey racism and fascism is bad but the message is hey it's bad get up and register to vote mm. we can help change the world by doing i don't think a song ever changed the world and i'm more than happy for any listeners out there to to stop shouting at their phones and actually <laughs> write me an email or write something in the facebook group and tell me otherwise i'd love to know i, I know that like in the 80s and this is less political but you know of course there were fundraising songs of the type of you know we are the world and do they know it's chris and all that so they did a charity song and yes you could say that a charity song raised money to help people worse off but we're not talking about people listening to the song and saying i'm going to change my
by thinking, and this is how I'm going to start doing it. So I, in that regard, I don't know that a song changes the world, but I do think that even if it gives people food for thought, I think it'd be a terrible world if all we were doing was we were singing songs or listening to songs about just about trivial matters. I mean, yeah, I, look, I love love songs. I'm a softy. I love great songs about love and we need those songs about romantic notions of love or you know about, mm. about other subjects but it'd be terrible if people's consciousness weren't actually raised a little bit if there was no political songwriters out there unfortunately punk rock a certain faction of skinhead fans kind of co-opted punk rock for a while and it got violent and nasty uh and it took for the musicians themselves to kind of lay it down to be like, now nah, we might look like you, but like the original skinhead thing was a multiracial thing anyway. Like skinhead movement came from reggae and dance hall and people had shaved heads, but they were enjoying black music, whether they were black or white. And that's where the specials and madness and all that two-tone music came from was a mixture of reggae and punk. And then somewhere along the line, the skinhead movement was co-opted by the far right and everyone was wearing cherry red DMs, braces, Ben Sherman shirts and the like, and were kicking the shit out of black people. Unfortunately, certain bands that aren't right-wing got lumbered with right-wing audiences. And you do wonder why the hell those people were attending madness shows or special shows. Mm. Like the specials had problems with, with racists. And you're like, but half the band's black. <laughs> right. <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> yeah, I, I think I was, I was reading the book before We Was We and I watched the three-part series about madness as well. And there were stories in that about madness touring with the specials like on a bus going from town to town and copying all those sorts of problems and it's just I read stories and I hear stories like that and I don't know whether to laugh or just to lose all faith in humanity just people are stupid it's bizarre isn't it but however to bring it back to rock against racism yes. what happened was after that open letter was published in the NME I think it was or Melody Maker they received uh, 600 replies 600 plus replies from people around the country and uh, off the back of that small branches of rock against racism about 200 groups around the uk were formed off the back of it so i think sometimes what what needs to happen is these things need to be put out into the open these ideas need to be put out into the open for people to go oh right there are more people that think like me as well as these nutters who are loud and out there on the streets like making uh, there are people that think like me and there they are and they're going to set this thing up and I want to be a part of that. I think there is good that comes from these uh, from these movements for sure and these songs. Certainly even within months, the first concert, the first Rock Against Racism gig took place in uh, November 1976 in a pub in London um, featuring uh, Carol Grimes, who was a British singer-songwriter, uh, and a British reggae act called Matumbi, whose um, guitarist Dennis Bovell went on to be hugely influential in the lovers' rock genre. Oh, yeah. 
yes, yes, yes. I've heard of Dennis Bovell. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. and he wrote Silly Games, mm-hmm. um, which is one of the big standout songs from that. I don't know. Did you get the Steve McQueen films, the Small Axe I, films? I, I watched one of them on, on uh, one of the streaming services. I haven't got rid of the others, but I watched uh, one called Lovers Rock. And that's the one. That's, uh, that, that he's song. in. He's. Yep. You know that. Um, yeah, the song that plays in full. Yes, I. God, I, I'd never heard the song before watching that film, and then for a couple of months, I became obsessed with it. You're as much to YouTube every chance I got gorgeous yeah um, I can't remember the name of the singer but she was singing on like on top of the pops or something like that but Dennis Bovell was actually in that scene as well in the house party that Silly Games was being played in he's actually in this in the film and uh, the song was sung by Janet Kay that's right yep, yep. and halfway through she gives this insane high pitched she reaches a pitch that I just can't fathom <laughs> <laughs> yes I, I do remember that that's amazing but yeah so he was part of this band Matumbi uh, who was part of the first gig and then it wasn't long after that uh, the next year that the first Rock Against Racism festival happened I should say that the really well-known Rock Against Racism festival that's the focus of the White Riot film featuring The Clash and Tom Robinson Band uh, and Steel Pulse takes place 44 years ago minus one week from the day that we are recording this so we're oh that's true we're yeah. recording on the 23rd of April 2022 and it took place on the 30th of April if it wasn't for the fact that I need to edit this and get it out before the end of the month I would have made this I would have recorded this on the day to make it really special but maybe <laughs> people can listen to this on the 30th yeah or whatever yeah and that one yeah it was uh, Victoria Park in London um, 1978 mm-hmm. with 100,000 people who came from all over the country and 42 coaches came from Glasgow 15 coaches from Sheffield a whole train came down from Manchester marching across London from Trafalgar Square to uh, Victoria Park and I believe it was Misty in Misty in Blue, is it? Who were the band who were marching with them, playing songs on the back of a truck. And then they led them into the park itself where, yeah, The Clash, Steel Pulse, Tom Robinson Band, X-Ray Specs, Jimmy Percy and Patrick Fitzgerald, uh, who were the ones playing. As an aside to this, we spoke on the See Here podcast a few months back about the film with Hazel O'Connor, Breaking Glass. And mm. there's a scene in there which... I'm sure invokes the time where you know her band is playing on the back of a truck alongside with a lot of people, presumably from the Rock Against Racism movement, and they end up clashing with members of the National Front. So right. this is you know to include that in a fictionalized tale uh, really goes to show that this was a very strong part of the culture, very strong activity in what was going on at the time to be put in a in a fictitious film that didn't deal exclusively with that as subject matter it's just another event but part of it yeah yeah, yeah. um well, we've been talking for a very long time <laughs> without having to, without having gone to the album under focus so what we're going to do now is we're going to go to a break i'm going to play a trailer for another podcast or an ad or some such thing and then when we get back i promise you listeners we're going to talk about tom robinson band's power in the darkness because that 
is really the reason that you downloaded this. I mean, look, I'm sure you've enjoyed everything that we've spoken about to this point because, you know, it's been witty repartee. That's what we do. But let's talk about the album after the break. You're listening to Love That Album, episode 156, with Tom over there and me over here. To many film fans, this is seen as a classic film quote. Louis, I think this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. This one is too. You talking to me? Over at Sea Here, however, we're very fond of this one. How many times do I have to tell you? No pizza for you, Joey. Not to mention this one. Grease is the best, man. <laughs> what makes us different to other film discussion podcasts? Tim, Bernie and I talk about films that are music-centric. Ours is the only podcast that has found the link between Hated, the Gigi Allen story, Ishtar, and Yellow Submarine. As well as roundtable film talk, we also speak with directors of music films about their work. So if you love music and you love films, join us at See Here. That's S-E-E-H-E-A-R. Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Proudly part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. Even Mozart likes the show. <laughs> Welcome back to Love That Album, episode 156. Thank you for sticking with us all this way. I promise you, we're now going to talk about Tom Robinson's Power in the Darkness, the album that this show is advertised <laughs> as being about. But, you know, really, we had to put everything in historical context. I like doing that on this show, and I like having guests on the show who also like doing that, and hence, that's why I invited Tom Austin Morgan, host of Band, B-A-N-N-E-D, Band Biographies, to join me because I know that he likes putting things in historical context because that's what his show is all about. I do indeed. Good. Okay. We're, <laughs> you're following all that, listeners? Good. All right. <laughs> Let's get onto the album. So... How to summarize this album in a few sentences, because we're going to get into specifics. But if you were to come to either of us and say, why should I listen to this album? What's the focus of the album? So as I think we've already gone and indicated before, this is a powerful rock album with punk energy. Not necessarily a punk album in the traditional sense, although I think there are a couple of songs that I think could qualify as straight mm. out punk. But this is more as you very accurately put out before Tom I think it's more like a pub rock album um, mm. it's duh a very political album a very us versus them record it, the subject matter is often very serious due to its aggressive rock and roll stance but it because of that it never feels miserably earnest it's earnest mm. but not woe is me life is shit it's woe is me things are tough let's do something about it mm. um, the album has a sense of urgency the melodies themselves on these songs they're catchy they yeah i don't think there's anything particularly groundbreaking but they are solid and memorable they're, they're simple and melodic i think that's a succinct way to put it a lot of other political work you might sort of feel should i be discussing this musically it's really more about the words and i think he might have even said something to that effect before but i think he can discuss this album musically because as we spoke about earlier on, Tom wants you to get the message, so he's going to bring in catchy, hook-laden tunes, and that's what this album is all about. Yeah, and it's from the start as well. I mean, the the, the opening track up against the wall. Dark head, dangerous school kids, 
tarmac Fighting in the middle of the road Supercharged fizzes on the asphalt The kids are coming in from the cold Look out, listen, can you hear it? Panic in the county hall Look out, listen, can you hear it? One hole up against the wall Up against the wall at the beginning of each chorus, there's look out, listen, can you hear it? And there's just a, there's a bat, 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 bat. It's really kind of upbeat, up tempo. It's all major chords, so it's very kind of up and positive sounding. It almost sounds kind of Motown-esque, that kind of poppy, clicky kind of, you know. There's one or two songs on this album that I would definitely put in the soul category. I'd never mm. thought about this song being a Motown sort of song, but you know what? I, I could imagine that if you were to rearrange it, this is the yeah. type of song that, you know, maybe fans of Northern Soul uh, mm. could, could definitely dig into. It's really, a lot of these songs, the sort of songs that could be molded quite easily into different shapes very, very well. Not everything, I think, mm. works that way, but I think these Tom Robinson songs, because I, he's shown post-Tom Robinson band that he's quite happy to go to different places musically so his mind thinks in that sort of way he's not exclusively a hardcore pub rock or punk rock type of songwriter he's working with that at this time of his career but you're right because they're so melodic they could go to different places and remember i mentioned earlier on in the show about that youtube video which you also got the chance to watch Mm. one of the things that he says about great songwriting three chords good two chords better. Yeah, and yeah. I like the fact that the opening song in this album and the closing song in this album are both two chord songs. And what I find it is genius about how he works is that if you're going to work with two chords, how are you going to keep it interesting? So what he does is when it gets to the chorus, there's harmonies. So yeah. I think, I'm not sure if it's the guitar player whose name's escaping me for the moment. It'll come back to me. I'm not sure if it's his guitarist who's singing harmony or he's overdubbed himself singing harmonies, but that's how you differentiate between the verses and the chorus. And that's how you keep things interesting. I was trying to think, what other songs do that? And the only other song that was coming to my head was Creep by Radiohead. In a beautiful That is four chords, but okay. but in creep, it's the same four chords the whole way through, but they work more on the dynamics. And yeah. when they get to the chorus. It's like he's put the uh, the tube screamer on the guitar. Mm, mm-hmm. but the rest of it is a clean guitar sound, and that's how you differentiate. If I'm going to use the same four chords the whole way through, there's no bridge, there's no chorus with a different chord structure. So that's where the brilliance of arrangement, and I'm a fanatic about great arrangements, and that's what he's gone and done here. I think this is fantastic. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, the guitarist's name is Danny Custow. Thank you, yes. 
or possibly Kustov. I don't know whether the, the W is a V. I'm, you know, one of the, not entirely sure. But yeah, I, and I think actually some of the guitar hooks that he puts into this, like, I don't know how much of the songs were written entirely by Tom Robinson or how much was a communal uh, effort, but certainly some of the solos that Custow puts in there are incredible. But yeah, absolutely. I, I get what you mean about enhancing the kind of basic song structure with incredible harmonies and arrangement and i think throughout the album you've got songs that could be described as quite basic pub rocky punk rocky type songs but then there's some range in there too power in the darkness for example and uh, which side of you're on all you downtrodden people always bear the brunt just sit back on your back backside till you have to face the front wait till the bullet balls get you don't make no kind of sense which side are you on sounds like a kind of funk stompy a funk punk uh, <laughs> song that kind of similar to kind of this is radio clash and rock the casbah there are elements of those songs in there which obviously were, were pulling from the sandinista album they were pulling from a kind of hip-hop a kind of direction whereas obviously this is a little bit before that the clash to be fair to them were probably a lot more diverse in showing off their influences i, I think like mm-hmm. tom robinson band are a lot more meat and potatoes but yeah. songs like Power in the Darkness which I do want to get to in its own right certainly are showing that they are musically invested in, in other styles there are a couple of songs like that but basically mm. the, you know, this is Meat and Potatoes let's all chant this song together and hopefully some of it will stick but yeah I, yeah. I think the Clash were a lot more I don't know I don't want to use the word clever because that implies that the Tom Robinson band weren't because it's not the case but certainly the Clash were a lot more showing off hey we love reggae hey yep. we love caribbean sounds you know hey we love mm. punk sounds hey we love a good piece of funk groove and i mean look topper hedden is one of the all-time great drummers so yeah. I think they, they have a lot to thank him for definitely yeah yeah but for guitar solos i pointed out the man you never saw and you got to survive and they're almost southern rock they've got a kind of real kind of country feel to them as well like so there are elements of other they're not as obvious like you say as as say the clash were with making songs entirely in a genre and even in gray cortina tom robinson literally name checks bruce springsteen as well right as playing through the through the radio the bruce of the uh, of the cortina but i also think that he's got a storytelling style in some of these songs especially gray cortina that could be similar to a bruce song just sort of finish off about up against the wall and this sort of like leads to a theme because there are different lyric writing approaches on this album and okay the whole album if you could call it a, a concept album and the concept is a call to arms the concept of the album is 1970s britain in despair it's time to rise up or we're in trouble so lyrically like in this song he's saying high wife fencing on the playground high rise pricing all around high rise prices on the high street high time to pull it all down he's describing the situation and that last line high time to pull it all down is like we've had enough of this shit let's actually move and you sort of wonder though is he actually telling people go out in the street run right 
riot or is it just no no i'm just having poetic license here i'd I'd, I'd be interested in that think about these things to create change there was a story like sometime i think in the 80s or the 90s where there was a, a fellow in the u.s who was sent to prison for murder because he thought that he'd heard bon scott tell him to go murder someone in the song night prowler right or, or for instance you know, charles manson saying that paul McCarthy, helter skelter helter, yeah. helter skelter absolutely what would happen if, sorry my lud i went out and rioted because tom robinson band told me to <laughs> <laughs> so, um, I, th- I think to me it, it feels more like social commentary uh, there's a especially in the lyrics of this song i mean you know he's literally describing a time and a place really dark haired dangerous school kids vicious suspicious 16 jet black bases at the bus stop sullen unhealthy and mean yeah i think he's got an eye for social commentary and this song really kind of brings that to the fore mm. uh, whether or not that's an actual call to arms i mean obviously it is whether it's him saying you should be doing this or whether again it's used as a kind of a motif if you like uh it's a it's a it's a device i'm not sure there are at least uh, probably more than this but like three other songs that i can think of that are also calls to arms so you know, up against the wall is a call to arms. and it's such a brilliant way to start off an album if someone said let me play you this and this is the first thing that you hear you're going to want to go and back and play that track one before you even move on to the the second song because right out of the gate that's so fantastic and it is come on let's do something about this either Mm. as well as a direct call to arms or it's just him playing around with words but the other songs that i would say well it might be used as evidence in court Mm. (laughs) look look, you could say either calls to arms or they're songs of exasperation at the very least Mm. and so one of them i mean look we all remember from the 80s or maybe you heard after the 80s the great twisted sister anthem we're not going to take it (laughs) we're going to rebel against our parents and we're going to rebel because this wider thing called society annoys us No one's ever specific. It's always society's to blame. But <laughs> on, on this album, Ain't Gonna Take It, a different song, and probably the most punk-like song on the album, as opposed to pub-like song on the album. Mm. Uh, mm. It's... Women with children always carry the can Till they lose them in divorce court to some pig of a man And a gay scene Only meant for the rich But we ain't gonna take it I'll take this song over the Twisted Sister song any day. Uh, Definitely. This, this one is, you know, it's rebellion against racism and domestic violence mm. as opposed to rebellion against, once again, nothing specified beyond a general notion of something called society. Both songs are about slogans, and that's probably a good one. I mean, I don't think Tom would mind this because he always wanted to get his message across, but there's probably a lot of sloganeering. Mm-hmm. On this album and that's not necessarily a bad thing because whatever it gets to get that message in your head that the national mm-hmm. front are at your door and unless you do something about voting them out or marching in you know peacefully or otherwise in the streets 
they're going to get in and all our lives are going to become a dystopia. Uh, he's very specific writing things about the Indian and Pakistani communities of England who are subject to National Front thugs, uh, mm. women who are in violent relationships, violent domestic relationships. And he even calls out by name Mary Whitehouse, uh, yeah. who I know was like the big conservative pain in the ass at the time in England. I'm, I'm pretty sure the, uh, the first time I think I heard her name was on uh, a Dave Allen show. I don't know if you <laughs> remember, if yeah, you remember yeah. to the Dave Allen at lunch. Yeah. But he, he brought her name up a lot. But yeah, this song is definitely uh, a, a great call to arms like you say it's sloganeering i mean even the fact that you know he's he's saying in the in the final uh, verse uh sisters and brothers what have we done we're fighting each other instead of the front better get it together big trouble to come and the odds are against us about 20 to 1 and it's just it's pointing out there's a bigger threat than what we're being told is the threat by the people who are actually the threat it's the whole situation with the left as ever too busy in fighting to fight the real fight uh, <laughs> that's something that I find that's just so brilliant about his lyrics is yeah. that he acknowledges that this is not a Pete Seeger early 60s folk anthem we shall overcome kumbaya brothers and sisters we are all equal no human nature says that even if you have a common political goal even if you have a common non-political goal we all like music but you go to some music online forum and say that you like such and such a band people will say ah oh, you're an idiot it's, yeah no. yeah <laughs> <laughs> or, or I like this band from this period. Oh, that's their worst album, you know. <laughs> so, so obviously, you know, he, he's very intelligently acknowledging that even with you know a, a common goal of overcoming fascism, hell, we can't even agree with each other. It's it's mm. so smart, it's so clever, and an acknowledgement of the truth, which means that anything that he says, I'm likely to believe, you know, because yeah, he's he's realistic about it. Yeah, he's not taking a kind of um, higher than thou approach. You know, yeah. I'm pre I'm preaching to you. You must do what I say. It's like it's more desperate than that almost. It's like you have to wake up. But they're certainly the, the up against the wall and ain't going to take it. Are definitely the most overtly kind of punk in their leanings. What was the other one that you were going to? Well, there are two other songs that I sort of made note of as being calls to arms. One was Long Hot Summer. Hey, Joe. This is definitely a song that's saying, get out into the streets. It's got a blistering guitar solo from Denny Custow mm -hmm. and Mark Ambler playing a brilliant Hammond organ solo. And he was only 16, I believe, at the time. Yeah, very young. Yeah. A really mature sounding player. He's absolutely fantastic. I'd love to know his background. We were discussing before, I was asking you the question before, can you be a punk band? Would it been a punk band without Mark Ambler, you know, sort of playing his um, Hammond organ. I mean, look, in the end, I don't think it even matters. It's just mm. great rock music, great angry rock music at a time when England needed it. Yeah. The, the song does say, get on your feet, out in the street when you hear the heat is on. Uh, now, this is what I wanted to allude to before. I mentioned while I was talking about the Secret Policeman's Ball and Pete Townsend. In this song, later in the song, uh, Tom sings the lyric, like I think the, one of the final lyrics of the song, we won't get fooled again. 
So mm. obviously making a reference to the Who song. And the irony is that's a song also about rebellion and jumping out in the street. But the final line of that is meet the new boss, same as the old boss. Same saying, as the old boss. Saying, you know, rebel all you like, but it ain't going to make a difference because we fight so much with each other. We're never going to achieve the same goal. And you might think that you've got great intentions, but you're just going to be bad as the last asshole that we threw out of power. So I find it interesting that... and we, as I said, we said a couple of minutes ago that Tom is realistic enough to know that mm. in his songs, he acknowledges that people are always going to be fighting with each other. They can't sort of like work out a way to get against their common goal, which is to do away with the fascists. But on this song, he's saying, come on, let's get out in the street. Let's march. Let's do everything that we got to do. And he uses the song that's basically saying, forget it. It's never going to yeah. work. And I don't The nihilistic think- protest song. <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. And I don't think people have necessarily always picked up on that. Here we have a, a song that's probably because it's loud and Pete Townsend's doing his windmill guitar theatrics and mm. Keith Moon is playing like a madman and <laughs> Roger Daltrey is doing what I say is the greatest scream in rock music ever. And people sort of maintain, oh, yeah, it's a protest song. No, it's a protest against protest songs. Mm. So I just mm. find it interesting that Tom invokes it. Yeah, I think it took me a couple of listens, actually, while I was kind of preparing for this i'd kind of never really noticed it before and then all of a sudden it jumped out at me that lyric yes and i thought well that's in there for a reason and then i went and uh, went away and had a look at it and and your context there absolutely nails it spot on when was that released won't get fooled again 1971 right so it's who's next so it's uh yeah six years on from that it was already like pantheon song mm-hmm. even at that time mm. so um yeah there was there was no way that the who were gonna get away without doing my generation and won't get fooled again uh, <laughs> I, I like to think sort of in a way that won't get fooled again is a sequel to my generation you know my generation leads up with all this hope where people try to put us down just because we get around and then seven or eight years later or whatever they're singing yeah look you know we tried this we we did it and it's good that we have those ideals but give up <laughs> we've been trodden down yeah we, we were fooled but we won't we won't get fooled again yeah vote for whoever you want to at the next election they're going to be shitty just like the last lot so you know stay home make yourself a nice bowl of soup don't go wasting your time <laughs> But then seven years later, Tom Robinson comes in and is actually like, no, come on, get involved. But yeah, I suppose this particular song, Long Hot Summer, I mean, it literally is describing the feeling in the country that I was pertaining to by giving you the kind of context to that Long Hot Summer. I mean, it was literally dubbed the Long Hot Summer. Right. Yes, of course. Yes. 1976, what you were saying. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So this song literally is about that and about the kind of broiling tensions at the time. And he's caught the zeitgeist by naming the song after the fact that the tabloids were calling it the long hot summer of 1976 he's written a song about it and it's out the next year and it's about protest it's about the punk movement you know fighting back against the right wing and and all that but it's also the most pub rocky stranglers type song on the album as well like it sounds very much like uh you know the stranglers i think this particular one i think it's the hammond organ it does it Uh, yeah look I, i confess it sort of hadn't occurred to me but yeah now that i'm thinking about it, I think yes, that makes complete sense.
Call to arms, and it's maybe not as explicit in saying, Come on, get out and jump in the streets. But although the last line of the song is stand up and fight for your rights, the most of the song is a list, it's the title track of the album. We're talking about power in the darkness, and it's, yeah, here's a bunch of reasons why life is problematic. And the final song, now that we've given you motivation, get out and do something about it. Uh, mm. The song is about freedom for what you do with your body, and that's still something like, as we're recording this, bunch of Republican-led states in the US are having an issue with at the moment. Mm. So um, he quotes about freedom to love whoever you choose. Yeah, We should all have the freedom to not be harassed by bigots of any stripe. Uh, mm. and, and the final message is fight for your rights otherwise these things are not going to be there tomorrow you know power in the darkness frightening lies from the other side really once again there's no metaphor here there's no symbolism <laughs> it's just you need to get on top of this so i'm going to make this as plain as possible but it's still going to be a song it's not just me being boring to you. i'm going to make this melodically enticing to you and mm. this is the funk song Yes. The album. That funky bass line, it's got a cowbell-driven drum beat. How many punk bands were using cowbells, you know? <laughs> Look, you know what? i just say that I reckon at the time this would have been Christopher Walken's favourite song <laughs> on this album. Guess what? I got a fever. And the only prescription is more cowbell. More cowbell. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, no, I, I I love, love, love this song. This is the standout track on the album for me. It, it distills everything. I mean, obviously, it's the title track, but it's also the final track. And I think on the UK release anyway, because the UK release only had the first 10 songs on it. The American release had a seven track uh, EP, which included Glad to be Gay and 2468. Basically a collection of the singles that had yeah. come out before, yeah. before this That's album. That's right. A couple of other tracks. The other interesting thing, because this album, I believe, got like to the top five in the UK charts. Yes, it at, did. At the time. And even though I don't remember hearing anything about it in the Australian charts at the time, but it actually, I think, got to number 50, which is, you know, not mm. top 40 or anything like that, but that's not insignificant either. Whereas it, it didn't get any higher than like 155 in the US or something oh, like there that. There you go. There <laughs> you go. So you gave them extra songs and they still didn't buy onto it. Yeah, bloody, yeah. Bloody America. I wonder. I wonder, though, whether that's got something to do with the EP containing the Glad to be Gay song, because as we know, there's always been historically a kind of bias against overtly gay musicians and songs. Yeah, but that's the thing, while we're saying that Tom Robinson was putting out that song in England, which did very, very well in a country that even if homosexuality was no longer illegal but people were still being bashed and abused i mean like as he wrote that song for a reason mm. it, there was still problems in the uk so the fact that it was as popular as it was is it's great but it's still something of a surprise to me uh, power in the darkness it's like I say, it's the very end song of the album. It's the final song of the album. So the final line of the album is stand up and fight for your rights, which in itself is quite a powerful thing to do, to leave after you've experienced a whole album that's the final thing that you hear. And I think that's very pointed. And obviously it's got the most biting and obvious anti-right-wing politics and anti-racist messages on the album, um, especially when you get that kind of fake or mocked-up news clip 
about the fundamental British systems of government are under attack, public schools, all that. Today, institutions fundamental to the British system of government are under attack. The public schools, the House of Lords, the Church of England, the holy institution of marriage, even our magnificent police force are no longer safe from those who would undermine our society. And it's about time we said enough is enough and saw a return to the traditional British values of discipline, obedience, morality and freedom. And then, and then it goes into a list of things that the establishment wants to be free from. I think it's quite apt that the accent that he puts on is yeah. like a, you know, an English. It's the received pronunciation. Yeah, yeah. Kind of BBC received pronunciation style. So coming back to our discussion earlier on about racism shows no difference between the classes. You had your working class bigots and you had your upper class bigots. Another two chord song, A minor and D. You know, I hadn't noticed that it was a two chord song. The the number of times I've listened to it, I'm going to have to listen to it again now. <laughs> I pay attention. I'm, I'm listening for these sorts of things. Otherwise, I got nothing to say. <laughs> <laughs> uh, look, I'll, I'll be honest with you. I sort of thought about this all the more after watching that presentation we were speaking about before. Yeah. Where he said, three chords, good, two chords, better. And I think, oh, I wonder how much he does it on this album. And then, boom, you know, <laughs> you listen to the song hundreds of times and then you come back and, oh, wow, yeah, that's one of those songs. Yes, of course. It, it was staring me right in the face. Yeah, that's incredible. The other angle I wanted to take on this was that we've gone and spoken about these songs where they're pretty much life is shit, this is what you got to do. But there's a couple of songs that he indulges, and I think you've already alluded to this, Tom, about mm. his storytelling facility, and he's a great storyteller. So one of these is Winter of 79. Top folks still come out on top. The government never resigned. The carry club was petrol bombed. The national front was getting awful strong. They done in dive and dug at him run in the winter 79. Yeah. Hang on, wait a minute. He recorded this in 1978. Okay, so what he's doing here is he's telling the story from the perspective of someone years down the track who says, hey, remember what happened in the winter of 79? And it's not all political. He, he says mm. Spurs beat Arsenal. What a game that was. But the, the whole thing he's saying, that was the year. And he was really, I mean, he was maybe, the, he had the gift of prophecy. He's saying, it the, was, world, yeah. the world as we knew it were burst open wide in the winter of 79. And that was the year Thatcher came into power. So really, that that is true and he could never have known that when he was writing it it's so prescient i mean it's not quite what came to pass but there was a massive upheaval in 79 and then the thatcher government came in and sold everything off and caused a lot of chaos that people like him would come to vilify even more people like him billy bragg the red wedge movement all that i think just as a little aside there i read something i thought there's got to be something about billy bragg and tom robinson in this and like about five years ago I, I found a clip where in, i think yeah 2016 so six years ago they recorded a song together now damn if i could remember what the name was uh, but they were talking about legal rights and how parliament uses the law for their privileges one law for the working class and one law for the aristocracy i thought has it really taken till 2016 before tom robinson and 
Billy Bragg were going to record a song together. But I remember reading something where Billy Bragg said, like, you know, he heard Glad to be Gay and he heard Power in the Darkness. And he said he just thought that Tom Robinson was the bravest songwriter around because he was saying things that the average Briton at best wasn't interested and at worst was actively aggressive against. Tom's thinking, obviously, was we're not going to get anywhere if I don't do it. I'm happy to fight if it comes to that, but I need to say things that people really need to hear because no one else is doing it. And that earned Billy Bragg's respect. So it's interesting to sort of guess whether the great Bragg catalogue would have even existed if Tom Robinson hadn't come along first. It's very true. Just having a look, I think, is the song called The Mighty Sword of Justice, I think is the song. That's the one. Yep, yep, yep. Great song, but I only heard it for the first time this week. Yeah, I, I only saw the video for it while I was doing preparation for this as well so uh, that's an interesting little avenue to go down later on as well <laughs> Indeed, I, but I'm just waiting for an album Tom and Billy sing your favourite marching hits you know yeah it's surprising song, songs, songs to protest by or something <laughs> yeah it's amazing that they'd never coincided never never, never co-written anything before because um, it seems like such an obvious pairing really Absolutely. doesn't it but, uh... Absolutely, yeah. Um, but anyway, so just on the song Winter of 79, it could have gone one of two ways. It could have been like taking the let's be optimistic about this route where mm. 10 years down the track, we're looking back and thinking, yeah, things changed, but we were victorious. But he doesn't play it that way. He actually sings, a few of us fought back and a few fought, and a few folks died in the winter of 79. I think he's pretty much saying like it's status quo. He's not saying like we were overrun. But it was just like, yeah, well, it was you know, most of Britain looked on and didn't give a shit. But yeah. some people fought and some people got involved in marches and in skirmishes and some people actually died for this. So once again, coming to the thing, he's realistic. He's not saying we shall overcome. It's saying, well, it's just as likely that we're going to suffer a lot. But it's interesting that he took the perspective of someone from the future looking back. Uh, not necessarily pessimistic, but just saying, well, based on what I'm seeing today, I can predict that it's not going to be that much better uh, yeah. several years down the track. Yeah, and so mad that that kind of – there were m massive social upheavals in 79 – so incredible foresight. Have you heard an ugly whisper? Is the rumor really true? Just in time, we're next in line. Early after me and you. Fits the demonstration, clamping down on every side. Rounding up the kids at random. Army curfew every night. Don't repeat this conversation. Don't let our women be fall. Try and make like I'm a stranger. I'm a man you never the man you never saw right yeah think, yeah which is to me mosh central if i'd love to be at a show i'd be squashed but that is very very punk and you know dolphin taylor is smashing the kit as if it owed him money which is a, a quote from, <laughs> from my brother tim merrill <laughs> and Danny Custo just shows what a guitar solo should be. Yeah, uh, shredding and, it. And Tom Robinson's bass line on this, it's simple, but super, super tight, which is not yeah. easy in a song played this fast. Uh, you, you've seen the film or maybe read the book about uh, 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 Children of Men. Yes. This very dystopian feature. And when he sings lines like, have you heard an ugly whisper? Is the rumor really true? Just in time, we're next in line. They're really after me and you. And 
that was what I thought about was that, oh, right. just that whole very dystopian. A lot of the songs on this album are about if you don't do something, then we're going to be in trouble. But this is, I think, the one song where there's actually talk along the grapevine, they're coming for us. Yeah, yeah. It's um, I just called to tell you that your place is being watched. Don't go into work tomorrow. Try and make it down the docks. They're trying to get on board a ship and get away. <laughs> Yeah, army curfews, police knocking on doors and changing clothes so you can't get recognised. It's Yeah, getting into disguises, yeah. Yes, it, it's scary. It's really scary. So those are the two songs that, to my mind anyway, show mm. you know, he's a great storyteller. And he was doing that a lot as well on the album I mentioned it, you know, way back five or six hours ago, uh, living mm. in a boom time. <laughs> <laughs> it becomes a lot more of a storyteller. But I know you're very keen to talk about Grey Cortina. I put that and another song in what I call the odd songs out on this. Yeah, show. oh, definitely. Yeah, certainly. Wish I had a Grey Cortina with my sherry all racing through. Cortina on the no one meaner. Wish that I could be like him. Twin exhaust and rustic bumper. I just think it's a fun knockabout song. It is odd that it's on this album. It's it's a uh, it's it's wish fulfillment, isn't it? It's lusting after a type of car and a lifestyle that goes along with that car. It's not quite as uh, you know. Uh, I'm in love with my car by Roger Taylor, but it's uh, <laughs> it's nearly it's nearly there, isn't it? Interesting. You mentioned that Queen song, but normally I don't associate the Brits with writing songs about cars. I mean, you know, that Queen song or Drive My Car by the Beatles, but that's not really about the romance of car driving. Well, like Madness is I like driving in my car as well is another. Okay, all right. Okay. Apart from the aqueduct, public irrigation, (laughs) roads and and public health. (laughs) Oh, dear. But no, really, it's. But again, it's the, you're right. Like the madness song is a bit kind of like, you know, it's got beeping sound effects, and it's all a bit kind of jolly. Yes, it's not. It's, um, it's, it's <clears> not about. <throat> it's not about the romance of car. The Americans do the romance of cars. So you listen to Beach Boy songs like "I Get Around" and "409" and "Little Deuce Coupe" and "Fun Fun Fun," and that's about driving in a car, specific types of cars, you know, Cadillacs and Chevys for its own sake. And Bruce Springsteen, stolen car, pink Cadillac, racing in the street. Cadillac Ranch. These are songs about the, the protagonist. Basically, you know, forget a woman in his life. He's romantically enamored with the car, and like he does mention Bruce Springsteen by name in this song. So it's mm. obviously a homage of some sort. But you sort of wonder the Cortina. It's not a fancy car. It's like no. If you're going for a Cadillac or a Chevy, those are cars which you know, the the young guys they aspire to, but it would cost a lot of money. So a Cortina. It's almost. I wonder if this song is almost like a piss take on. Mm. Geez, I, I like this. I like the trim. But he said he mentioned it has a rusty bumper. That's yeah. Not, that's not <laughs> something that you sing about in the romance of you know, a, a great car. And I, look, I see. If, I, I can't remember this, but what was it? A Cortina that Vivian drove in the young ones. That's a really good question. He did. Whether it was a Mark One Cortina or something quite similar, I can't remember. I'm sure the listeners out there are waving their fists and saying you idiot it's whatever it's really annoying because i i've watched the young ones countless times and i should know but i don't 
point. Yeah, it's also the stuff like fur-lined seats and lettered windscreen. Yes. And I was wondering whether lettered windscreen, I don't know whether you had them over there, but it was like, it was a thing in the 70s and maybe 80s where it was like people would put their names on the windscreen like it would be like i don't know dave over the driver's seat and julie because <laughs> uh, like the man is the driver and she's in the passenger seat you know what i mean like there was a there was a thing in the uk where people would do that so i think maybe maybe it is a piss take song i don't know oh my god i have no recollection of that i'll be honest i'm not a car person so Mm. I, I, I couldn't tell, but I certainly don't remember that being a thing. Doesn't mean it didn't happen here. But anyway, look, but this, this is a fun and bouncy song, but it is sort of like the comedy relief, if you will, like in a film. But it's only like the second song in, and I'm sort of thinking, why do we get the relief at this point? But on the other hand, maybe because you know, he's also about working class concerns. And if the Cortina, I don't know, but I'm presuming because, you know, the Cortina is not a fancy car, that it's a working class car that mm. maybe that's just what lads of his age were aspiring to. And they, they think, well, you know, if I work long and hard enough, you know, then I'll, I'll be able to afford one of these. And this is what's appealing about this to me. I did hear him say in an interview, though, and it might have been on this television show that I mentioned to you before we started recording called Too Good to Be True that was done for Granada Television. And I think he said that he was taken to task about that song because I think sometime in the early 70s where Ford, this big international corporation, laid off a lot of British workers at one of their plants. So right. people are saying, what are you doing writing a romantic song about the love of a product that's made by people who are oppressing the working classes? I don't know. Personally, he was just saying, look, you know, I write, I write other songs too. He's entitled, he's entitled to write a fun song. But it's just that so much of this album is about political concerns and oppression concerns that this one does sound a little out of place in that regard. It's positive, upbeat, it's fun. And I think maybe it's almost like a palate cleanser, but it is odd that it comes in as a second song. Right. It should um, have been coming in song seven or eight or something like that. Maybe, on, yeah. On the, on the record, it should have opened the second side or something like that. But look, you know what? At least this is a good song. So the second song that I see is the odd one out, you might think differently and you may find that there's another song that seems out of place on this collection. Mm. But for the one that I really don't like and it's musically rather than lyrically is Too Good To Be True. Right, okay. That's the song that lyrically fits, but musically does not. And the first time, I defy anyone to listen to this song and not think that the first time they hear it, they think, oh, is he ripping off Van Morrison? Because he's using the moon dance motif, putting aside everything that he said over the last couple of years about his free dumb, uh, that's mm -hmm. not D-U-M-B. Yeah, yeah. For forgetting all that for the moment, some of my most cherished albums are from Van Morrison. I love a lot of what he's done and he's written about summer stuff so beautifully. But really, if I never heard Moon Dance again in my life, I'd be a happy chap. It's just... <laughs> 
one of those ubiquitous songs that just gets on my wick. I, yeah, I know, just, I know what you mean. So, so hearing Tom Robinson potentially nicking, a, a, and there's no way he couldn't have known. It's there's no way he said, oh, I've never heard that song. I know it never occurred to me. But um, I know what you mean. It's it's the least. Well, it's certainly the slowest and restrained, I would say, song. It's keyboard-led rather than guitar-led, which is probably one of the only ones where it is, I would say, except maybe Power in the Darkness. I don't know. You may be right, but the difference between this and Power in the Darkness is that... The groove. The, yeah, yeah. Power in the Darkness has a groove. It's funky. It's It works, whereas this slow, laid-back song, two songs in, it sounds a little bit too like, hey, pull your dance partner in tight. Let's... <laughs> <laughs> We've got to put the lights down. Yes. Now. Oh, it's so slick. Sorry, Tom, if you're listening to this, and I'd be flattered if you are, but no, this one never did it for me. Yeah, it's easily the odd one out on the album. And yeah, now that you've mentioned the Moondance connection, I can't not hear it. It's very, <laughs> very obvious, isn't it? Once, once it's pointed out, it's... Uh, oh, you hadn't picked yeah. it? No, I hadn't. Well, it's a marvelous night for a moon dance With the stars up above in your eyes For some reason, I, I don't know why. I guess sometimes I compartmentalize things slightly too much, perhaps, and I'm not thinking about the wider musical influences. So, yeah, certainly the one misstep, shall we put, shall we say, I think, on the album. You know, it's not even this, like the worst song I've ever heard or anything no. like that, but it's just the worst song on this album. And yeah, I'm inclined to, on my CD, to program that one out. But, you know, one misstep on an otherwise exemplary album. Is, is there anything else i mean we've sort of gone and covered the themes of the album is there anything else that you wanted to point out about the album i think what you what you've said is you know 100 percent spot on the whole way through as you say this is a as an exemplary album it's it's inventive only in the fact that it's incredibly accessible as well as incredibly political mm. which is not something that is often done i feel like you say the overtly political often is quite dry and uh, a bit po-faced and serious mm -hmm. whereas this is serious but the songs like i say are accessible because they've got those hooks that we've been talking about earlier and and the production is really quite good compared to other albums that were coming out at the time by similarly political politicized bands mm. Mm -hmm. They were slightly more ragged around the edges. Yes, absolutely. Um, so it really made, and like I said before, that's more subversive because it means that it's more likely to get played on a radio station if it's slicker. But the message is still there because the lyrics are so overtly about what they're about. I'm struggling to think of anyone else who's made a political album that wasn't a bleak it was it said here's the message i'm not going to try and hide it i mean yes sure there have been lots of you know, political bands your rages against the machines and great album uh, pj harvey's let england shake millions more that i'm probably not thinking about but this one is saying listen to what i have to say if you agree please act on it uh, and everyone yeah. is trying to be more poetic about that and there's nothing wrong with that at all but 
Tom said, this is what I have to do and mm. does it very, very successfully. The album that came after this, TRB2, also another great album, but this one for me out of the two. Yeah, there's something about it. I don't know wh- what it is about that album, but I can't, I'm not as into it as this one. No, I don't know whether it's like a slight change in the songwriting. I don't, I don't know what it is, but it doesn't connect the same way. Yeah, look, I mean, it was a change of lineup. You know, his, his head was going in different places and it would have been incredibly... I don't know, I hate to use the word intense. Uh, what am I thinking? He would have been under, like, put himself under personal pressure to write these songs and then to have to do it all over again means he's thinking about this 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And as we saw later on, he wrote about other things, which means that his mind was on other things. He, maybe he's mm. just saying, you know what? I just want to write songs about I had a nice lunch today or I had a, <laughs> I had a lovely walk in the country. But these things are getting in my way. And, and please can we get on with it so I can you know, have my lovely walk in the country I, w- I want to do a song like Madness uh, uh, Our House or something like that you know just but I, I, he, there's only so much that he can write in such a concentrated short period of time because those two albums came within like a fairly short period of time of each other and yeah I mean almost 13 months I think 13 months that's a that's a tall order I mean mm. wow so she's a writer, she's a She knows what she likes She needs you and me, man Dr. Fish needs a bite Well, I think we've pretty much covered all that we want to say about that album, and it gets the thumbs up from both of us. So, listeners out there, if you've Definitely. if you've come this far and you've not heard the album before, what are you waiting for? Go out and listen to it. It's on the streaming services, but you know, go out and buy yourself a copy of the CD mm. or the record. They're out there; they're still available, and certainly worthy of your time. Mm, definitely. If you're a fan of the album, please post in Facebook or send me an email or send Tom an email and let us know you know you think we got it right we got it wrong something we hadn't considered because you know, we like that sort of thing so I gotta say it was, it, was, it was a long time coming but I think it was worth it I was looking forward all week once you know I knew right it's only a week away to uh, <laughs> recording this show with you and you brought so much perspective I'm so grateful that you came on I'm, I'm a big fan of band biographies that's B-A-N-N-E-D uh <laughs> Just going to make sure people know where to find you. Uh, I'm a big, big fan of the show, and I'm just absolutely thrilled that you came on and um, had this conversation with me. It's been fantastic. Thank you so much for inviting me, and I'm glad that we could finally get it together and have this conversation. Yeah, I, I sometimes fear that... I listen too much because I'm a listener of this show. I often find myself being like, "Oh, I'm just going to sit here and listen to him talk about it." But uh, oh, I've got to, I've got to, I've got to join in at some point. <laughs> but yeah, no, thank you so much for having me on. It's been an absolute blast. Um, I love this album. I've really enjoyed talking about it with you. Thank you so much. Uh, so for people out there who want to find your podcast or find you on social media, the like, how can they get in contact with you? Sure. So the website is 
bandbiographies.com. That's B-A-N-N-E-D biographies.com. Uh, I'm on Twitter at bandbiogs, and that's B-A-N-N-E-D-B-I-O-G-S. Twitter, bandbiographies. I'm on Facebook as well. You can find me at Tom Austin Morgan on all those places too. Uh, at Tom Austin Morgan, you'll find me everywhere there. I don't really post a lot of personal things, but, you know, I'm there. If you want to come and talk to me, tag me into the discussions on this episode with Morris. That would be great. Um, I'm always up for talking music with people. Fantastic. And those are the sorts of people I like to bring on this show, people who like to talk about music and passionately. Let's talk about next month. Next month is May of 2022, and I've got an interview. And those of you who know me in real life or have followed stuff in the Facebook group will know that I'm a huge fan of the Knack. So I am beyond excited to announce that I have Prescott Niles, the bass player of the Knack, uh, and also of Missing Persons. But I suspect it's more than Knack that we're going to be talking about. I mean, look, I'm sure the story's been told a million times, so I'm going to have to find questions that he's not been asked before, or at least clever ways of asking the same old questions. I don't know. If you've got any questions... Just email me, put him in the Facebook group, whatever. But I'm just so excited that the bass player of one of my favorite albums, Get the Knack, and I should say that some of those other Knack albums, like But the Little Girls Understand and Round Trip and Zoom, fantastic albums. So I'm just yeah, beyond excited that I'm going to get to speak to the bass player from one of my favorite bands and made one of my favorite records ever. I don't know how I'm going to keep myself from just being obsequious the whole show. I'll, I'll work on it. Uh, I'm incredibly jealous as well. Oh, man. It's I'm so such a get. I'm so excited. Anyway, so that's, yeah, May of 2022. I'll be speaking with uh, Prescott Niles of The Knack. So all I can do uh, is just finish off by, once again, huge thanks to you, Tom, and a huge thanks to you, the listener, for uh, downloading and listening to the show. Please spread the word that we exist. And until next time, please be nice to each other. Don't be fascists. Um, <laughs> and just be, be like Rick. Be an anti-fascist. Until we speak again next month, all the best. Cheers. Cheers, Maurice. Justice wears a coronet, but justice is a whore. She puts out for rich gentlemen who come to pay her court and kicks away the crutches from beggars at her door. There's one law for the rich and another one for the poor. Mighty sword of justice and time of us all. All citizens stand equal before the mighty laws. But even mighty justice has one almighty flaw. There's one It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett. 
Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 